You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told April 2nd, 2019 at Northern Light United Church. The theme was On the Job. Live music was by the Warfrats. Our first storyteller tonight is Camden Clancy. Um, Camden is the biggest football fan in the smallest package. At only nine years old, he is a true believer in the saying, fortune favors the bold, as he put himself out there to win the opportunity of a lifetime. Camden, are you ready to come up? It all started when I sent in a video to a contest to go to the Super Bowl. Next thing I know it is I'm flying across the country to go to New York City. And I can't believe what I saw. Massive buildings, bright lights, and lots of people. And random whiffs of steamy, stinky poo from the sewers. <laughs> a happy time for me. And when we finally got to Good Morning America, there's like, when I get in the studio, there's, it's like so bright. I'm like, I can't see. <laughs> And there's about 10 to 15 cameramen. And also, I'm thinking I'm a finalist for the Super Bowl. And until Michael Strahan tells me, Camden, there's something that we failed to mention. You're not a finalist. Camden, you're the winner, my friend. My arm went straight, my arms went straight up, my mouth went straight down. <laughs> I actually won. So fast forward a few weeks, now I'm in Atlanta at opening night. And my first real big job was to interview the top stars from the two teams, which were the New England Patriots and the Los Angeles Rams. Has anybody got an interview with Tom Brady? <laughs> Back row? Well, if you don't know who Tom Brady is, he's mentioned as the greatest quarterback of all time, a.k.a. the GOAT. And he just won his sixth ring. So I got the chance to ask Tom Brady a question. How are you able to focus despite the negative fan base, AKA the haters? <laughs> and he replied, we love them because we don't hate back. And as a kid, that's amazing advice. I mean. <laughs> so this whole competition I was saying Tyler Lockett was my favorite NFL star. He plays wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, if you don't know. The reason is I like him is he's humble and he always has a good attitude. And my baseball coach, Coach Cart, told me we, we win with class, we lose with class. And Coach Cart definitely had, um, Tyler Lockett definitely has that. And he also broke his leg and actually could have chose to not play, but he loved the game so much that he wanted to play the game. And he was much stronger even before he broke that leg. And the same with me. I broke my arm. Four, four years later, I came back and led my team to the championship and won the championship. And I can still do the things I did before. So during one of Good Morning America's segments, I hear Camden, and I turn around to my favorite NFL star, Tyler Lockett. 
I couldn't help myself but come on in for a big all bear hug. <laughs> and here it is, the big game, Super Bowl 53. There I am, chilling on the sideline, NFL players towering over me, the camera crew chilling behind me. Next thing I hear on the speaker of Mercedes-Benz Stadium say, to present the game ball, please welcome our NFL key correspondent, Camden Clancy. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> and I jog out there, and I give it to the official, and he says, do you mind if we take a selfie? So he, so he grabs his phone out of the pocket. He grabs his arm around mine. We take a pic. We take a pic. Click. <laughs> and then I look. 70,000 people are looking at me. Phone flashes. Then I look. There's my hands up self on the jumbotron for 70,000 people to see. <sighs> and this overall was an incredible experience. As thousands of kids wanted this job, but I didn't let that stop me from trying. Why? Because fortune favors the bold. Thank you. Our next speaker is Roseanne Schmitz. In the fall of 1988, Roseanne had dinner with some friends who had just returned from a trip to Juneau. After hearing of their wonderful trip, she went home that night and booked a flight. By day two, she knew she was where she needed to be. She gave notice at work, bought a truck, and moved to Juneau, arriving April 2nd, exactly 30 years ago today. Please welcome Roseanne to the stage. Yeah, they say never follow a kid or an animal act. So I was raised in a little community up in the hills of the East Bay of San Francisco. Um, our community was comprised of about 95% Caucasians. There was no cultural diversity. I attended for 10 years a private Catholic school with basically the same group of kids in my class every single year. It was like going to school with my cousins. When I was 18, I decided to enter the nursing program, which was about three miles away. And my nursing instructor was an RN by the name of Lucy Muldrow. Now, Mrs. Muldrow was a rather heavy set black woman, about 55 years of age. She was crackerjack smart and had a great sense of humor. So, we were going to start our, it, well, we were in our second year of nursing, and I was 20 years old and pretty naive. And the hospital that we were going to start our practical rotations at was about three towns over, and they were very culturally diverse. So that first uh, rotation, I find myself in pediatrics, and one of my patients is a little four-year-old black boy by the name of Anthony. Now, Anthony had just had a bladder repair the day or two before. And I was in there checking him out and just playing a little bit when all of a sudden Anthony starts crying out, my booty, my booty hurts, rub my booty. And I said, your booty? He says, yes, my booty, rub my booty. I said, hang on, Anthony, I'll be right back. And I ran out into the hall. I spotted Mrs. Muldrow. I said, come quick. Anthony's in distress. She said, well, what's going on? I said, I don't know. He says his booty hurts, and he wants me to rub it. And she said, well, you know patients that have come through bladder surgery, they often have spasms. 
And so go rub his booty. Booty? What's a booty? She looked at me, and you could see this incredulous look just drift across her face. And she said, girl, are you kidding me? A booty is a butt. A butt? A, a butt? Now, I had never heard the word booty before, so I asked her, Mrs. Muldrow, is booty a word that only black people know? Is it? Girl, <laughs> booty is a word that everybody knows except you. <laughs> now get in there and rub his booty. So about a week later, I find myself on the med surge ward, and um, all the patients there in this particular ward are all post-op. And um, I'm given a list of eight patients, and I'm supposed to give a full assessment of them and come back to her and tell her, and then we continue with our day. So I get through the first seven, no problem. Come to the eighth patient, and I'm outside his door, and I see that it's a 24-year-old guy, and I'm 20, 24-year-old guy named Mike. And I kind of take a peek in the door and, oh my God, this guy is hot. I mean, he is, he looks like he could be an ad for a surf magazine. He was so good looking. He had, he was tan, had this bleach blonde hair, and he was built. And you know, and then I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, you know, he doesn't have so much as a catheter or an IV or oxygen. What the heck is he in here for? So I open up the chart to see and no, 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 no. I'm not going to do this. There is no way. I'm going to refuse to take care of him. I am. Maybe I could get married to trade patients with me. They can't make me take care of this patient, can they? Oh my God, what am I gonna do? You know what he was in for? A circumcision. <laughs> oh my God, how am I gonna do this? I'm thinking, I'm like, I know. Okay, I'll just take his vitals, that's it. Just his vitals. So I go in there, take his vitals, I ask him if everything else is okay, and he said, it's all fine, in this deep cocoa voice. And I just melt out of the room, and I run into Mrs. Muldrow. She says, oh, hey, I was uh, looking for you. I need to get the assessment on all your patients. And she said, uh, so tell me what happened. So I give her the rundown on the first seven. And she says, what about Mike? Did you see him? And did you check his dressing? Uh, no. Well, is there a problem? Yes, Mrs. Muldrow, there's a problem. Because when I go to pull back those covers to check his dressing, he's going to know I'm looking at his penis. <laughs> she said, just come with me. So we go into the room, and she's going to check his dressing. So I strategically place myself behind Mrs. Muldrow to obscure the whole circumcised penal area. 
and it worked perfectly. So she checks it, she says it's fine, she replaces the covers and we walk out. I'm ready, lay it on me. She says, I wanna talk to you. I'm like, okay, okay. She says, I wanna tell you, I love my job. <laughs> well, that's nice. Yeah, there's a lot of things I love about my job. One of the things that I love about my job is that every day I come to work, I know that you're going to be here. <laughs> and at the end of the day, when I go home to my wonderful husband, he greets me at the door with a kiss, and I go in and get cleaned up and come back down and sit to a table that has a beautifully prepared dinner. And he looks up and smiles at me and says, so Lucy, tell me, what did Roseanne do today? Okay, our next speaker tonight, our next storyteller is Cindy Besser. Cindy's mother was raised in California and her father in North Carolina. They met in Texas, had four daughters, and in 1959 moved to Alaska, the year it became a state. The plan was to spend three years in Juneau, but Mark's almost 93 now, and they're still here. <laughs> Being raised so far away from family down south, the Bussers found that friends could be their extended family. Cindy learned for herself one day that in really isolated workplaces, coworkers might become family too. It was the summer of 1975. My parents had moved up to Fairbanks, so I decided to go up and visit them. Fairbanks in 75 was an oil pipeline boom town, just infested with construction workers. I went down to a cafe one day and I ran into a guy I knew from Juneau, a pipeliner, and he called off out across the cafe and said, hey Cindy, what you doing up here? You gonna come out on the line? I went, uh, no, I'm just here visiting mom and dad. He said, ah, oh, come on, girl, you can run a dozer good as half of those guys out there. I went, all right, yeah, well. <laughs> and he, he started digging through his overstuffed wallet and pulled out a scrap of paper and gave it to me and said, there's the union steward's number, give him a call. Well, he threw down a $50 tip and walked out, and I sat there and stared at my, my burger and the $50, and being a very impulsive 19-year-old, I went over to the payphone and I called the steward. Well, about 45 minutes later, I was walking into International Union of Operating Engineers Hall. <laughs> and uh, I was slapping down my $10 for, uh, to register for working on the Alaska pipeline. Now, the, the guy there was real clear to tell me that all that paper gave me was the right to stand behind 3,000 other guys who also wanted to work on the line. Oh, well, I was willing to try. Next morning, I went into the, the um, dispatch hall. Well, actually, I stood outside and thought for a second, thought, what am I doing? And then I went in, and I just felt just as comfortable as a, a sheep in a lion's den. <laughs> Luckily, I'd brought my best friend with me. I brought my book. So I just kind of sidled out to the wall and started reading Dune. Kept a pretty low profile all day long. Never heard my number called. Came back next day, didn't hear my number called. Came back the next day, and I was really kind of about to give up. And then this guy pokes his head in the, in the back door and says, hey, anybody want to 
day job on a 350. And all the guys around me just kind of frowned at him and turned away. And I went, huh. So I thought, hey, it's work. So I went out the door, chased the guy down, and said, well, what do you need? And he said, girl, you even know what a 350 is? And I said, yeah, it's a dinky little rig, but it gets a lot done. And he, and he said, huh, okay. Well, he gave me his address. I don't think he ever expected to see me, but I showed up the next day, and I pulled some stumps and cut in a little road for him. And and end of the day, he gave me a wad of bills, and, and it was the first money I ever made running, running heavy equipment. See, I'd learned how to run equipment by from... Um, working for free for my boyfriend in high school whose family homestead part of the valley. And <clears throat> so I, w I was really happy for this. Um, I went back to the Union Hall the next day, and a guy with a real grungy-looking John Deere hat saw me come in and said, hey, there's Scab Girl. I realized then that the reason why the guys had frowned at the, the guy was not because um, it was a John Deere, a little tiny rig, it was because it was a non-union job, and I had just made a really big mistake. <laughs> now, normally that would put you right at the back of the line, but for some reason, it worked the opposite way for me. Um, I guess word must have gotten back to the hall that I did know how to operate. And later that afternoon, I heard my number called. I had a job in the Alaska Pipeline. <laughs> I was an oiler. That's an apprentice operator. And I signed up for 714s. That's seven days a week and 14 hours a day, nine weeks on, no days off. <laughs> Uh, my mom, uh, when I got home, told her that she said she said I should have my head examined. <laughs> and my my dad, he said just like he always does, well, you go right ahead, gal, you could do that. <laughs> so next day, I got on the transport bus and went off to Isabel Pass. When I got there, I thought they delivered me to a prison. It was like high chain link fence all around these modular units, and and I I knew that family couldn't come in to visit, but I thought maybe they were just trying to keep us in there too, but. I found my room finally, and my roommate was already uh, dead asleep, so I just crashed. My alarm went off at 4.30 in the morning, and my roommate Susie, she was already up. She was dressed, and um, she was working real intently on two little lines of white powder on top of the dresser. Just kind of snorting it up. <laughs> I thought, well, everybody's got their morning routine. <laughs> And when I got on the bus, I figured the bus driver might have the same routine because he was really wired. He said, come on in, sweet thing. And I went, oh, shoot. I don't like being called a noun, but he was welcoming. And I tried, <laughs> I tried not to stare at his plastered collage of pinups all over the dash and up to the ceiling and headed to the back of the bus. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> When, I got out to, when we got out to the work site, the foreman was there with a pickup, and he pulled me off the bus and, and said, hey, sorry, girl, uh, the, the operator that was supposed to come run that link belt didn't show, so uh, we don't have a job for you after all. Why don't you jump in the truck? I'll give you a ride back to the, to the yard in a little bit. I went, oh, no. I said, isn't there anything I can do on your crew? And he said, uh. And I said, well, I can run D6. And he goes, Really? And he drove off down the road and dropped me off at a spill yard where there was two D6 dozers and one old guy greasing up one of them. Well, he, and he leaned out the window and said, that there's Freddie Pride. He's the best damn cat skinner on the line. And then he spun off and left me. So I walked over to Freddie and I said, hi, 
I'm Cindy, and I was going to run that other dozer. And he said, really? Where'd you learn how to run? And I said, well, my boyfriend and family homestead part of judo, and, and he taught me how to run it. And, and he said, really? It turns out he was a homesteader, too, from Toke. And he taught his niece how to run dozer, and he was just happy as clam to have me on board. <laughs> By the end of the day, we were buddy blading together, pushing melted permafrost uphill. And <laughs> when I got back to the camp, I was exhausted and stinky. So I grabbed my towel and my shampoo, and I headed for the shower stall. Then Susie, my roommate, she grabbed my arm and said, I was heading to the women's room, and she said, don't go near there, girl. That's rape central. And I went, okay, and she led me into the, into the men's room. Now, this was a long time before all gender bathrooms. <laughs> and there was this guy uh, spitting in the sink right at the entrance, and she put her hand on his shoulder and said, hey, Rick, this is my roomie. She's a newbie. Make sure nobody gives her any hard time. And, and then she left. <laughs> so I just stood there. I jumped in the first shower stall, and I just sat there on the bench going, what? I, I can't get undressed in here. I can't. And then finally I thought, well, sourdoughs, they always get, they, they just shower with their clothes on. I thought, well, maybe I'll do that. And, and I thought, no, a wet T-shirt contest is probably not what I want to get into right now. And, and so, so I finally stripped down and did the fastest shower you can imagine. <laughs> got out of there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and uh, I went on, um, okay, <laughs> went on down in the mess hall. Now, that was the next gauntlet of the night. I went through there. I felt like a fresh loaf of bread coming into a starvation camp. <laughs> but I got my tray, and I set it down at the free table and, and started to dig in. And then two big guys slapped their trays down on either side of me. And I look up, and here's this guy with that funky... John Deere hat, and he's looking at me, he says, hey, scab girl, here you've been thinking you're an operator out there. You don't have an A card. And the other guy says, yeah, what the shit you think you're doing? You're, you're taking a job from a guy who needs to feed his family. And I went, whoa. I was, so, you know, tears started welling up, and I just looked down at my plate, and, and then another guy slaps his tray on, across from me. And I look up, and it was Freddie Pride. And Freddie, he just sits there real quiet-like, and he looks, stares down both those guys, and he says, either one of you guys run a dozer better than this young lady, you come out and show her tomorrow. If not, you just shut the fuck up. <laughs> You'll have to beep that one. <laughs> and I, sure enough, they, they got up and left. And tell you the truth, I was about ready to drag up and quit this whole scene, but with Freddie by my side, with a foreman that trusted me just like my dad, and with my roomie, Susie, getting my, keeping my back, <laughs> I figured maybe I could make it, and I did. I made it nine weeks, 10, 12, 14, 16 continuous weeks without a day off, <laughs> and went out of there a little crazy, but nope. <laughs> Nobody was calling me scab girl anymore. In fact, when I got home, there was a letter from the International Union of Operating Engineers with my A card in it, and it said, Dear Sir and Brother. <laughs> well, at least I was family. <laughs> Our next speaker is John DeCherney. John moved to Juneau from the East Coast in 1982, having married a Haynes girl the year before. 
He worked as a chef at the Fiddlehead for eight years, and with his spouse Nancy, who's much more famous, he helped write the Fiddlehead cookbook. He also was the chef for Governors Cowper and briefly Walter Hickel. For the past 25 years, he's been in the wholesale, wholesale beer and wine business for specialty imports. Please welcome John to the stage. My uh, current mantra, or the cleaned up version of my current mantra is, everybody's job is worse than you can possibly imagine. And the reason that I got to thinking about this is that a lot of people tell me that I have the best job in town or the easiest job in town. And in fact, I work for, as she said, specialty imports. We import beer and wine. I get to taste some great beverages. I get to go to some fun places. And I get to, uh, you know, do some fun things. But my job has definite downsides like anybody else's. Give you an example. A couple years ago, I was sitting at Zarelda's with a woman who was revising their wine list. It's two in the afternoon. I got four glasses of Chardonnay in front of me. She's on the other side of the table. She's got four glasses of Chardonnay in front of her. My neighbor Stan up the street walks by and says, "Boy, you have the best, easiest, insert whatever word, job in town." And in fact, I mean that was a pretty decent way to spend an afternoon. What Stan doesn't see is all the times when I'm pushing a hand truck through the snow or sitting on the floor of Safeway or Fred Meyer moving bottles around, which I can tell you I do a whole lot more than sitting across the table with a woman half my age drinking Chardonnay at 2 in the afternoon. <laughs> but what really got me chanting this particular mantra about some people have worse jobs than me and I got a better job were two business trips that I took more or less back to back a couple summers ago, one to Ketchikan and one to Skagway. The trip to Ketchikan, I got up very early in the morning. It's a summer day, so I get to the airport, and the airport's really crowded. You know, there's a lot of tourists, and it was just after TSA had changed one of their regulations. So there's this young man who I'd seen a lot because I travel a lot, and he's in charge of TSA, and he's chanting his mantra, which is the one about... You know, you have yes, you have to take off your shoes. Yes, you have to finish your uh, your latte. Yes, you have to take off your belt. Sometimes you have to stand in this line because you got the pre-checks. The other time you have to stand the long line with the rest of the schmucks because you don't have the pre-check. So I was particularly sympathetic to this young man because a couple months prior to this, I had packed on a trip to one of my uh, regions that I visit. I had just grabbed my bag, there was some clothes in it, and they were sending it through the scanner. And after it goes through the x-ray machine, this young man looks at me and goes, did you know you have a box cutter in the pocket of your pants? Well, obviously I didn't know that. And instead of saying, you're under arrest and frog marching me off to Lemon Creek, he says, you know, you can keep the box cutter if you take the razor blade out. And I was incredibly grateful I mean, it was a really nice thing for him to do. It's not like box cutters are expensive or hard to find. It just was a really nice gesture. You know, there aren't many branches of the federal government that you deal with on a regular basis. I mean, the IRS, if you're a law-abiding citizen, every April 15th. But TSA, you have to deal with every time you go to the airport. And that's when I began to think, you know, maybe I should not be as impatient with these people as I usually am because... I personally don't want that job, and I'm glad that guy's doing it instead of me. 
Now, the trip to Skagway was the one that made me think that I definitely have a better job than most people. Because I was going up there to do a wine tasting, but as soon as I got to town, I was getting text messages and phone calls from two of my favorite customers saying, are you coming to the burlesque show at the Red Onion tonight? And every year they have a breast, uh, a breast cancer <laughs> fundraiser, <laughs> pun intended. They have a fundraiser for breast cancer at the Red Onion, and it's very popular. So the manager of the Red Onion has managed to get me a ticket. I don't know what to expect, but she and another customer keep texting me, and I'm trying to beg off. I'm going, you know, this is really not my scene. I don't like to stay out late. And, you know, I, I'm, oddly enough, I'm really not a bar person, despite being in the bar business. But I, I, I give in. I say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll come to the, uh, the burlesque show. I'm suffering, I know. So I get done with my wine tasting, and I go to the Red Onion, and I open the door, and the place is just absolutely packed. I mean, you couldn't have gotten more people in there with a shoehorn. And I don't know what to do, so I look, and Tiffany, the manager of the Red Onion, is behind the bar, and she looks at me, and she does this gesture. She points at me and then does the finger-beckoning thing. So Tiffany is a, a great customer. She's smart. She's funny. She's hardworking, she's really well organized, and if she's gonna make that gesture like, you come here, I'm gonna do whatever she says. I mean, she, she could have said, you know, um, somebody with Ebola got sick in one of the bathrooms. Would you mind cleaning it up? I would have been like, hey, you know, give me the mop, whatever, right? So she beckons me and she takes me behind the bar and sits me right next to the stage of the burlesque show, right? So the first act comes out, and it's, it's women taking their clothes off, not all the way, but part of the way, enough to keep anybody entertained. And the first act is a young lady who's the daughter of a woman who's been in my Rotary Club for as long as I can remember. I've known this woman since she was about this tall and singing the Star Spangled Banner at the Pillars of American Freedom series. So we've met. And I think, okay, this is getting kind of weird. And then the guy sitting next to me is my other customer, Justin. And he looks at me, he goes, hey, you want a shot of tequila? And I'm like, yeah, sure, why not, right? So I'm sitting there and I'm drinking tequila and watching the show. And then I feel this tap on my, show, on my knee. And I look and it's the owner of the Red Onion. And she's like four rows behind me. And I'm thinking, how did the owner get a worse seat than me? That makes no sense whatsoever. But anyway, the owner of the Red Onion hands me this wad of $1 bills about the size of a softball. And she says, make sure the girls get tipped really well. Sure. So the next thing I know, I'm making it rain with somebody else's money. And boy, there's a good feeling for you. So I made sure the girls were tipped. So that was the night I went back to my room and thought, you know, you probably have a better job than most people. So the moral of the story, or as my father would say, did you learn anything is, I'm 64 years old a couple weeks ago. I'm going to retire soon. You want my job? Sure. But let me tell you that for every night at the Red Onion, there's a morning on the floor of Fred Meyer. Thank you. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. 
These stories were recorded April 2nd, 2019 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was On the Job. Curious? Visit our website at mudrooms.org. Okay, so our next storyteller has um, what I would call a very humble um, sort of bio. Um, Ernestine Hayes is a professor teaching literary arts at the University of Alaska Southeast. She's had more than a few jobs over the years, and along the way, she's learned some things about on-the-job responsibilities. And I'd like to point out that one of her jobs is telling amazing stories, so I'm very excited to welcome Ernestine to the stage. Thank you. I was born in Juneau at the end of the Second World War, and I stayed in Juneau till I was 15 when my mother and I moved to California. While I was growing up in Juneau, I saw my mother, my grandmother, and my aunties sliming fish, mopping floors, emptying bedpans, doing whatever they thought they had to do to care for me and to see to the needs of the future generations, of their coming generations. When my mother and I moved to California, she continued typing and filing as she had gone to school to learn to do. And one of the first things that I did was quit school. I never finished 10th grade. I learned to type and file like my mother, and that's what I pretty much spent the next several years doing. I did things like bookkeeping in uh, a credit union, paying accounts for uh, Wild Bill's used car lot in Roseville, um, unpacking boxes at the college bookstore. By this time, I was living in uh, Sierra Nevada foothills with my children, and I was doing everything that I felt like I had to do to take care of my children and to see to the needs of the future generations of my coming generations. But when I turned 40, my life was in shambles, and my children were either grown or living with their father, I was homeless, not for the first time. I was broke, not for the last time. And it took me eight months to get from San Francisco to Ketchikan. I'd been in California for 25 years, and I'd never been home once. So being homeless, I lived in my car. I stood in food lines. I slept in shelters. I did everything that I could to get, make it back home because I felt like that was the thing that I needed to do to see to the welfare of my children and to meet the needs of the coming generations. When you're homeless, your job is to wait. You wait for food. You wait for the your turn in the bathroom, you wait for food and and uh, mattress and coffee and the doors to open, you just wait. I finally made it to Ketchikan, I stayed there a couple of years and then I got back home to Juneau with my mother and my sons. 
One of the first jobs that I had when I came back to Juneau was working at a native theater where we danced and sang old songs. And at the end of each performance, we would stand on the stage and introduce ourselves in our native language and translate what we had just said. And I would say, my clinket name is Sankasakt. My white man name is Ernestine Hayes. I am Eagle. I am of the Burnt House People clan. I belong to the Wolf House. I'm a grandchild of the Gunachtedi. Yan Washa, I'm a Kogwantan woman. Shitka Kwan, my clan springs from Sitka. I went on to start college even though I never finished high school and I started college at the age of 50. And I went on to earn a terminal degree in uh, creative writing. And while I was going to school, I worked several summers, all those summers, on the waters of the Inside Passage. And I have to smile every time I say that. And one of the things that I finally learned about working, and one of the things that I finally learned about all of us as we work so hard for ourselves, for our children, our grandchildren, and now my great-grandchildren, is that we do what we think we can to see to the welfare and care of our children and to see to the needs of the coming generations. We all have the same job. We all have the same care that it takes to see to the needs of our own loved ones, of the future, of all the generations that are coming after us. We have the same job and we have the same job description and we all have the same duties. In order to change one life, we change one life, we change that person's generations. When we change generations, we change the future. And we need to take care of the needs of the future, not just of our loved ones, not just of Alaska, but of our world. And we share that job and we share those duties and our duties are decolonize, smash the patriarchy, undo capitalism, resist. Our next speaker is David Parrish. Dave was born in Juneau at St. Anne's Hospital to Robert and Dorothy Parrish, one of 11 kids. In 1956, his family left to follow employment opportunities across the Midwest. His dad worked as a tunnel stiff 220 feet below the great Midwestern rivers. After completing high school in Minnesota, Dave returned to the land of great opportunity, and in 1971, he found the best job ever. It even include, included room and board. Please welcome Dave to the stage. I've got Parkinson's disease, and it limits my ability to stand without trembling. 
So they graciously at the board allowed me to sit. And I think it'll distract if I do stand up. So I wanted to start this speech or this talk by thanking my wife, my primary caregiver, Dr. Gwen, who gave me the deep brain simulator, and Emily Haskell, who has allowed me to walk by doing dry needling in my legs. So I'm thankful to all of the medical staff at Bartlett Hospital and Swedish Hospital for keeping me going and as optimistic as I am. Well, the story that I'm going to share comes from June 1st, 1971, whenever a meticulous pilot from World War II named Bill Pinette came to the Dillingham Airport and picked me up after I dropped, was dropped off on a Ween air flight and took me to King Salmon into a windswept airport. And I was sandblasted the second I stepped out of the plane. And I gathered up my gear and we went to the camp, which was really sparse. And I laid out my gear and I met a couple of the people I'd be working with. Herb Jenicky was our camp foreman and a dear friend who grew to be a dear friend, my bearded and feckless friend who was a third year college student studying Drysophila meningaster. He was studying the mating habits of fruit flies. <laughs> and even though I wasn't really impressed with that, he proved himself to be a really bright and capable guy. And we were doing the most tedious work. We were cleaning the warehouse. We were moving boxes around. We were packing groceries for the guys who were out in the camps. There were seven camps that, around Lake Iliamna and the tributaries. And we had the responsibility of eating all the steak. <laughs> so I gained 24 pounds during that summer. <laughs> and the guys had hamburger and chicken. <laughs> but I was so grateful that Jim was a co-conspirator in this because I didn't have to take the full responsibility to Jerry Taylor and the people who lived in Juneau and have to bear that burden for 50 years. <laughs> so the thing that really bugged me was how boring the work was. You know, we were throwing these carcasses of sockeye salmon one at a time after they had their eggs taken out and their adipose fin clipped. So they were putting these in Ziploc bags and stacking them. And we'd do about 100 fish a day. And there were these huge boars that were standing on the edge of the river. And they were 10 feet long. I mean, they were four feet at the shoulder, and they were not to be toyed with. So we had a stack of four inch in diameter, four foot long sticks that we used to scare the bears whenever they would false charge. There wasn't a gun in the group. But Bob Dewey was a capable man, and he said, no guns, we're just going to scare them off, we'll look bigger than them. So after uh, several weeks of this, Jim and I got the, heard the rumor that there were beautiful women available at the Naknik Bar 12 miles away. <laughs> so being isolated with Jim for such a long period of time, we were both really optimistic that we would have life-changing relationships that would develop <laughs> in the bar at Naknik. So 5.30 in the evening, we raced toward the Naknik bar. And much to our surprise, there were matronly ladies hooked up with fat fishermen. <laughs> and it smelled like beer and camel cigarettes. And we said, this is no place for us. There isn't one eligible female in the whole crowd. So we jumped back into the travel-all vehicle that B Bill Pinette 
cherished. He polished that rig. It was brand new. And he took care of that rig as well as he took care of the de Havilland beaver that he shuttled us all over the Iliamna chain with. So Jim and I took that vehicle and went out onto the flats when we discovered there was not a lovely lady in the whole group. We decided to go out on the flats and enjoy the sunset. So we didn't understand anything about tides. We were Chichacos. I was 19 and he was 22. So we just followed the tide out and we found a big flat rock and it was round about 20 feet in diameter. And we pulled up on top of the rock and Jim pulled out his finely crafted Dorbro guitar with a silver top and he started singing Sitting in the dock of Bristol Bay, watching the tide roll away. I left my home in Del Mar, and I headed for a Bristol Bay. Oh, so Jim and I, after a few bars of his singing, decided it was time, Jim decided it was time to show me something I'd never seen before. I was a virgin in so many ways. He pulled out a four-inch long brass pipe, and he tucked in a wad of Acapulco gold hashish, and he showed me how to suck down in three drags a full bowl of this hashish. So we immediately went into cosmic laughter. We laughed for what must have been an hour, and the tide was coming back up against the rock, and we said, we got to get out of here. So Jim jumped in the front seat and slammed it into gear and he going about 30 miles an hour to cover that two miles. And lo and behold, we got run over a shard of steel that was probably from a basket for fish. And it ripped the front tire completely off the vehicle. And we went surging into the sand. And he said, no, we're not done yet. And he slammed it into four-wheel drive and spun all four tires and dug us down until we were <laughs> bottomed out the full length of this international travel all van. So we ran up to the bar and it was pretty much vacated except for some real hardcore drinkers and the bartender and he loaned us a high left jack. So we ran back down to the beach carrying this 40-pound jack and we got underneath each side and we put four 55-gallon drums underneath each corner of the truck, thinking that maybe this would save us. And we tracked down a couple of 18-wheelers that were going by and they would not stop for a government moron <laughs> in order to pull us out. So we were there in desperate straits and the water was starting to splash around our ankles. And it was 11 at night and we were just racked with anxiety, but we had done everything we could. The truck was 40 inches above the water, and there was still time on the tide. So we ran back up and dropped off the high lift jack and started walking mournfully back toward King Salmon. And it was very difficult knowing whether it would be better to be eaten alive by Bill Pinet or a brown bear. So about two miles into the walk, two hours into our despair, Herb Jenicky came, and a sweeter soul would be hard to find. He picked us up and he said, are you guys okay? Yeah. Where's the truck? 
and we took him back to the site where the truck was. And 2.30 in the morning, the waves were breaking over the cab of the truck. The truck was rocking back and forth with every wave. And that was all we could stand to look at. The next morning, of course, you know, Bill Pinad and Herb and I and Jim went out and retrieved the truck, and it took us two and a half weeks to clean the truck, to wash out the brakes, to wash out the engine, to put in all new fluids, to clean up the electrical system. But they didn't fire us, and nobody was killed. <laughs> so I'm very grateful, and I, the lesson that I came away from it was something that Jerry Ratliff, a power lineman I worked with for several years, told me whenever I made a few inconsequential errors with him. He said, you give an apprentice or a novice, or, you know, in this case, somebody who wasn't familiar with the tide, the chichaco, a steel hammer and a glass ball, and it'll obliterate the steel hammer. So our final storyteller tonight is one of our own, uh, David Noon. David is a historian at the University of Alaska Southeast and a 17-year resident of Juneau. He grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, where he was fired from a job as a dishwasher in the Hollins College cafeteria during his senior year of high school in 1987. Four years later, he was fired from the student newspaper at James Madison University. And in early 1993, he was fired from a telemarketing job in Harrisonburg, Virginia. For very good reasons, he has been enrolled in or employed by one school or another since 1975, with the exception of a 10-month stretch in the early 1990s when the following cautionary tale takes place. So I graduated from James Madison University in December 1992. I had a dual major in history and English. My particular passion was 19th century New England and the literature of the American Romantics. So among many other things, I was the most enormous Nathaniel Hawthorne fanboy you could imagine. But right at the end of college, my last semester, I suddenly became what the kids call woke, and I began reading pretty widely in a variety of radical traditions that I had never encountered before. So I was reading 19th and early 20th century anarchist philosophy. I was reading Marx for the first time. I became entranced by the countercultural movements of the 1960s, everything from French situationism to the new left and black power in the United States and so on and so forth. And this was an extremely on-brand kind of moment for a 20-something college-educated white guy in the early 1990s. And I quickly became the sort of person who, at parties, would corner new friends and begin asking them if they had a few moments to talk about their personal relationship with the mode of production. <laughs> All of this was taking place in that 10 months of unsupervised time that spanned graduation on one end and the start of my PhD program at the University of Minnesota on the other. Intoxicated with all of these new ideas and a variety of other substances, <laughs> I resolved to commit myself full time to fighting the man. So the day I got hired at Subway, 
which is where one goes to, to fight the man in <laughs> early 1993. I, I sat down and interviewed with Kim, who was the manager, and Ned, who was the owner, and they gave me sort of an orientation to the place and introduced me to some of the co-workers. And, uh, and then concluded, Kim's part at least, was to conclude by telling me that everyone here at Subway, we're all just like one big family. And I thought, well, what does that mean? Are we gonna get all drunk and passive aggressive around the holidays? Like... <laughs> but uh, underqualified as I was with my literature degree, I got the job. Uh, so to quote Cameron, my arms went straight up and my <laughs> jaw went straight down. Uh, and I began uh, slinging subs uh, for a for a living. Uh, the, the job was not particularly difficult. Uh, there's a great line in uh, The Scarlet Letter, the, the, the old gray-bearded sexton says something along the lines of, a pure hand does not need a glove. And this was before people really started wearing those plastic gloves at Subway. These were not pure hands making <laughs> sandwiches. It was not difficult work, but uh, I had a lot of time. The traffic was pretty light there, so I had a lot of time to do bong hits in the walk-in freezer, read through the first volume of Capital, and uh, learn how to take those tiny little subway bread knives and sling them so that they stuck in the drywall next to the imitation crab meat that no one ever bought. But uh, I made things easier on myself by turning off the lights outside every night at 10 o'clock, two hours before closing, and, <laughs> and by allowing a crew of local hoodlums to hang out in the parking lot every night. Ned, the owner, wanted me to call the cops whenever I saw these guys show up. But what I heard was make free sandwiches for these gentlemen so they'll stick around and serve as my human scarecrows, and, and that's what I did. Uh, every now and then, I would take an extra shift on like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, which was a, a perilous decision because on Saturday and Sunday afternoons, there was a real risk that actual work might have to be done. Our restaurant was located right off of one of the busiest interstates in, on the Atlantic coast, I-81. And uh, routinely, a, a bus would pull off full of church youth group or high school track team, and the restaurant would be slammed uh, for uh, an hour. There was a McDonald's next door. They often took the brunt of the, 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 the traffic, but, but this, this was a risky time. So on one of these afternoons, I was working with, with Sandy, who was this very sweet 16-year-old kid, completely uncorrupted. She had the misfortune of working with me. So as we are making our way through the day, all of a sudden, a 40-foot coach pulls up in the overflow lot across the street from the subway. With no time to spare, I turned to Sandy and I said, look, we can't make sandwiches if there's no bread. So we're taking this bread rack and we're moving it in the back. Sandy looks at me and she says, we can't do that. I said, the hell we can't. This thing has wheels. It rolls. <laughs> do you want to make sandwiches for the next 90 minutes or do you want to throw knives into 
the, the wall. So to her credit, Santa got on board. We moved the bread rack into the back. And for you know, the next hour, we had nothing to do, which gave me the opportunity to evangelize. So I start yakking, as I did, about the man and how the man had us under his boot heel and how the man was ripping us off and how we all had to get together and fight the man. Sandy, after listening to this nonsense for just long enough, turns to me and she says, who is this man <laughs> that you keep talking about? And I said, come on, Sandy, you know, the man. She says, Ned? <laughs> I said, oh no, bigger than Ned. And her eyes dilated like she had just dropped a tab of acid. She couldn't conceive of anything bigger than Ned. And Sandy was quiet for a really long time after that. Now, I don't know if Sandy absorbed the good news that I had, had offered her that day, but you'll probably not be surprised to learn that eventually I got the duck call from, from Subway. Good timing. Uh, like all good parents, Ned and Kim decided it was time for me to, to go and make my way in the world. So I was, I was gone. My career as a sandwich artist ended. And I'm not sure what the final straw was. I don't know if it was the customers complaining about the little flecks of drywall in their sandwiches, or if it was the time that I called in sick and told Kim that I had taken acid and had a bike accident and was in the hospital. And this was doubly funny because not only did I not actually do acid, but I didn't also actually own a bike. <laughs> but I did depart Subway having learned, well, really absolutely nothing, <laughs> except that family and work are often best kept apart and that, as Hester Prynne says in The Scarlet Letter, um, be it sin or no, I hate the man. Thanks. You're listening to KTO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on April 2nd, 2019. The theme for the evening was On the Job. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Alita Bus. Additional help from Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Jeff Smith, Rich Moniak, and David Noon. Music by The Wharf Rats. I'm Alita Bus. Have a good night.